folks, this is Miss Sinclair for Miss Sinclair's History. Today, we are continuing to learn about AP US history. We are on topic 3.9, which looks at the Constitution. Now, before we jump into it, I just have a couple notes <clears throat> I would like to add. Um, first off, this is a resource for students, teachers, and anyone who just wants to learn about US history. That being said, if you are a teacher, know that normally I do not teach the constitution in lecture format. I think it is better to give students a copy of the constitution and have them work with the actual document. Um, there's lots of resources for this. The constitution center online has a lot of lesson plans to really help with this even something as simple as having students outline it or um, doing a scavenger hunt. Um, I think learning about the constitution, maybe a brief lecture overview can be helpful, but it is best for students to work with the document itself. Also, there are tons of great resources out there about the constitution. Um, I by no means have the definitive analysis of it. Um, again, check out the Constitution Center. There are videos from TED-Ed, from history.com, from Crash Course, um, from all kinds of sources um, that dig into different parts of the Constitution. So just wanted to add that, that there are shorter videos, um, and longer and more in-depth videos, um, but a lot of resources for the Constitution itself. Okay, let's jump into it. So what is something that people think is in the Constitution but isn't? Now, this might be a tricky question for you because you might be thinking, I don't know. I don't know what's in the Constitution yet, so how do I know what's, what's not? So maybe think about it like this. What are some things that you think are in the Constitution? Right? What are some things you're pretty confident about? Now, you may have identified some of the procedural aspects of the Constitution, um, how the president gets elected, how we choose members of Congress, um, how the judiciary is set up. You may have talked about the Bill of Rights, individual rights, freedom of speech, freedom um, from um, unfair um, persecution, right? You need a, um, a warrant um, to be arrested, et cetera, et cetera. One thing I want um, that I was thinking about specifically for this question is the separation of church and state. Nowhere in the US constitution will you find that exact language. In fact, you will find that language in the Virginia constitution which in which Thomas Jefferson wrote that there ought to be a high wall of separation between church and state, but that is not in the US constitution. Now we'll talk about the role of um, religion in the constitution as we go forward, especially when we get to the bill of rights. But that was the first thing I thought of. So today we are covering topic 3.9, which looks at the constitution of the United States. This is, so vitally important to understand. 
So you'll be able to explain the continuity and changes in the structure and functions of the government with the ratification of the constitution. That means by the end of this, I would love you to be able to identify what is different and what has stayed the same in the US government with the articles and the constitution. So let me get on my soapbox briefly. As a US history teacher, as a social studies teacher, um, I am continually amazed with the amount of bad takes online. Um, pet peeve, people are like, well, the constitution says you can do this, or it's against, the, that's unconstitutional. And it's like, well, that's not, that's not true. So many average Americans do not have a working understanding of how our government works, what the constitution outlines. And so when the government does something that they don't like, they think, well, that's, that's unconstitutional when perhaps it is not. It may be inappropriate. It may be unwise. It may be immoral. Um, it may be even illegal, but it is not necessarily unconstitutional. We are going to give into tons of examples of this as we go forward in U.S. history. But I think this is something that's easy to skim over, be like, blah, 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 the Constitution, whatever. Um, but even if you have no interest in becoming a lawyer or following the Supreme Court or you're so burnt out on politics, to be a good citizen of the United States, you should know how our government works. So to begin with, the constitution divides our government into three branches. This structure was borrowed from the Baron de Montesquieu's um, enlightenment writing. You have the legislative branch, AKA Congress, the executive branch, the president and the judicial branch. So let's jump into it with article one. So article one of the constitution outlines the legislative branch. Our constitution was designed to be a series of checks and balances. So the legislative branch makes the laws. That is its primary purpose. So section one of the article one, section one, Congress makes the laws. Then we dig into the structure of Congress. We have a bicameral legislature. That means we have two houses. The first is the House of Representatives. Now in the constitution, we outline that representatives will be elected every two years, that you must be at least 25. You have to be a US citizen for seven years and you have to live in the state you are representing. Representation is dependent on the state's population. Now, when this was created, um, indigenous peoples were not included in the state population um, for representation. Only three-fifths of slaves are counted. But every state is guaranteed at least one representative. Now, one check Congress has on the executive branch is the power of impeachment. So the House can impeach, 
but then the Senate will indict. What does that mean? I'll get to it. Let me talk about the Senate in just a second. All right. So the House of Representatives was envisioned to be the most democratic branch of government, right? You are being elected every two years. You are, um, it's direct election, right? So citizens are voting. Um, the view was the people being voted into the House of Representatives mm, are probably, I don't know how to say this, um, a little less educated, perhaps a little bit lower class, you know, representatives of the people and the people are kind of messy. The Senate, on the other hand, were intended to be the elder statesmen, right? This is the people who are trained in politics. These are the career politicians. They have um, law degrees, they're educated, they have money. So the Senate holds elections every six years. Now, you don't elect both senators every six years. They're, they're staggered. Um, originally, senators would be chosen by the state legislature. So this made the state legislature more powerful. Um, what do I mean by that? You would vote for your state senators, your state representatives, and then those people would choose, would vote on who the senators would be. So that meant the people elected to your state legislature would have a lot more power. However, in the progressive era, the 17th amendment changes that, establishing the direct election of senators. So now citizens vote for senators. There are pros and cons to that. Um, most people think, ah, the more citizen participation, the good thing, um, but other people have noticed that that has made um, senators a lot more beholden to the whims of politics, right? When they are chosen by state legislatures, um, A, it empowered state legislatures, which is not necessarily a bad thing, right? Um, the model of federalism means that states have power as well as the federal government's power is distributed between the federal government and the states. By having the direct election of senators, the states have less power um, and the federal government has more power. So if the senators are more beholden to the whims of the citizens in politics, that means when you have fads, that means you're gonna have politicians, live streaming themselves just to make sure they get the likes to um, senators being more and more radical um, in their views because they have to win their primary election, which in which very few people tend to participate in the most radical. So some people have made the argument that in fact, the direct election of senators has contributed to our polarization. Um, whereas when the state legislatures um, chose senators, they were a little bit insulated from that and were able to act more independently. All right, that's modern day politics though. Every state has two senators. So that means how many senators are there? A hundred, 50 states, every state gets two senators, a hundred senators, full stop. 
Now, the House has 435 representatives. They solidified that number in the 20th century. And every 10 years with the census, they redistribute um, the representatives based off state population. So because every state gets two senators, it does mean that states with smaller populations are overrepresented in terms of votes per capita, right? If you're in North Dakota and you have five people, the amount of influence each citizen has over their senator is going to be a lot greater than like California or Texas. A senator must be at least 30. They had to be a citizen for at least nine years and they have to live in the state in which they are representing. They hold the impeachment trial. So again, this is a check on the executive. We have had three presidents impeached and zero presidents removed. Um, that means the House of Representatives bring forward impeachment documents. They vote on it. And if the House of Representatives votes to impeach, then that moves to the Senate. In the Senate, they hold a trial where the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court acts as the judge and it's like a trial, right? There are lawyers, there's evidence, there's witnesses, and the Senate acts as the jury. At the end of the trial, the senators vote. And if they vote to remove the president, that means the president's no longer in power and the vice president moves up. We have seen like I said, three presidents impeached, but zero presidents removed. Okay, so what about the executive branch? Oh, um, actually, before we move on to the executive branch, a couple more things about, um, okay, sorry. Um, a couple more things about Senate. So, Like I said, there are other people who have done more in-depth and shorter and briefer um, outlines of the Constitution. All right, Article 1, the legislative branch. Section 1, Congress makes laws. Section 2, the House of Representatives. Section 3, the Senate. Section 4, elections and meetings of Congress. Basically, states control their own elections. Congress has to meet at least once a year. Section 5, rules of procedure for Congress. And it simply says Congress makes its own rules. Now, this is important because people are like, how can, like, I don't like that the House of Representatives functions like this. I don't like that the, um, that the Senate majority leader decides what laws come to a vote or blah, 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 blah. Yeah, you can, I, I don't like the filibuster, blah, 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 blah. Or I love the filibuster. All of those things are rules that Congress has made for itself. They are not in the constitution. Congress can change those rules. They can get rid of the filibuster. They can add it back in. They can say that every law, every bill has to come to the floor of debate um, within 30 days of it being proposed regardless of committee hearings. It, it can make its own rules. It can say on Wednesdays, everyone wears pink. Section six, 
privileges and restrictions of members of Congress. Basically, it's saying Congress has to get paid. Section seven, how laws are made. Well, all tax bills must start in the House of Representatives. So the budget starts in the House. For a bill to become a law, it must be voted on in both houses. So a law um, starts out in either the House or the Senate as a bill. If you haven't watched the Schoolhouse Rock uh, song about this, I recommend it. Then the House or the Senate talks about it, debates it, votes on it. If it passes, it then goes to the other house. They talk about it, debate it, vote on it. If it passes that house, right, the Senate or the House of Representatives, then it goes on to the president. The president can sign it into law or he can veto it. Okay, section eight, powers granted to Congress. What can Congress do? Well, they have financial powers. They can tax, they can create tariffs, they can take out loans, they can pay debts, they can coin money. They can establish post offices and roads. They can declare war. They can fund and maintain the military. Now here's the most important part of section, article one, section eight. It's known as the necessary and proper clause, also known as the elastic clause. I'm going to read it to you. To make laws which are <clears throat> to make laws which shall be necessary and proper for the carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this constitution into the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. What does that mean? That means Congress has the power to make laws beyond this list, right? The constitution, it says, look, there's other things Congress can do other than what we have explicitly listed out. And that's okay. We give Congress permission to make laws beyond just these things that we have identified. This is going to be an important uh, section because it is going to play into a lot of different things the government's going to try and do. Now, I want you to notice here that Congress has been given most of the powers. The Constitution outlines Congress to be the most powerful branch of government. But if I was going to ask you today, what's the most powerful branch of government? You're probably going to say the president, and you wouldn't necessarily be wrong. Our Congress has been remarkably ineffective in gosh, the last session at least, but certainly the last 20 years. One of the reasons why we have so many, uh, so much pressure on the Supreme Court is because there are all these legal questions, political questions that Congress just isn't acting on. They aren't passing laws. They aren't um, getting anything done. But the Constitution puts most of the power in Congress. And yet, since the Constitution was created, we have seen more and more of that power shift to the executive with every president, let's be clear. Starting with Washington, moving all the way to President Biden, every president has been more powerful than the one before it. Okay, Article Two, the executive branch. The executive branch outlines the powers of the president. 
So the power of the president is to execute the law. So the executive branch has the job of executing the laws created by Congress. So Article 1, Section 1, looks at the office of the president and the vice president. The president is going to be elected every four years using the process of the electoral college. Hold that thought. I'm going to come back to the electoral college. Section 2 looks at powers granted to the president. Um, we see that um, the president is to execute the laws. So if Congress makes a law and he, um, he signs it, it's his job to make it happen, right? So all of the executive branch departments, Department of Health, Department of Justice, Department of Defense, right? It's his, the president's job to make sure laws happen. And if he has to create departments to help execute those laws, then that's allowed. Congress picks the election day. The president must be a natural born citizen. That means born within the United States. And they have to be at least 35. The vice president is in charge if death, resignation, or inability impacts the president. See the 25th Amendment to clarify the powers of the vice president. Because it's not necessarily clear when William Henry Harrison dies, he is our first president to die in office, not the last. It's not clear if his vice president is simply meant to serve as president until there can be an emergency election or what. Um, instead, Zachary Taylor says, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to be president. I'm going to serve out the end of his term. All right, section three, duties of the president. Well, the president is to serve as the commander in chief of the military. He is in charge of the executive offices. He nominates ambassadors, federal judges, officers, all approved by the Senate. So for example, most recently, Judge Jackson joined the Supreme Court. The President Biden nominated her. She went to the Senate. The Senate grilled her, voted to approve her or not. She was voted in. That means she is the new Supreme Court justice. And the president has to, from time to time, give a report to Congress on the State of the Union. This has become the State of the Union Address, which happens every year, typically in the spring. And he can offer recommendations to Congress. I think you should pass this law. I want Congress to, um, you know, declare war on um, Germany. I want Congress to pass all of these laws to help combat the Great Depression. I want Congress to fund NASA so we can go to the moon. To be removed from office, this is Article 2, Section 4, the president can be removed from office um, on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. All right. I said I'd go back to the Electoral College. There's a great TED-Ed video on the Electoral College. Um, I recommend you watching it, but let me talk about it a little bit. 
where's my mouse? Okay. The Electoral College has gotten a lot of attention in recent years, most of it negative. Um, people tend to think I vote for the president. That's not technically true. When in 2024, if you are able to vote, you'll get your ballot. You'll see a list of the presidential candidates and underneath their names, you'll see a bunch of smaller names. These are the electors. So when you vote in Arizona or California or Texas, Florida, wherever, when you vote, you are not actually voting for the president directly. You are voting for a slate of electors. This, um, how the electors are selected, it depends on your state. Different states have different rules. However, the number of electors a state gets is the number of representatives and your two senators. So for example, Arizona has nine representatives and two senators, therefore we have 11 electoral votes. See the 12th amendment for more details about this. So why does this matter? Well, if it keeps the presidency from being a popular election, it means that states with smaller populations do have more sway. So what happens to the electors? Think about the 2020 election. And again, I'm gonna use Arizona as an example. Many states have a winner take all policy. So when Biden got 51% of, and I'm trying to remember these numbers, don't, they're not exact, so forgive me. If, um, if Biden got 51% of the popular vote in Arizona, that meant all 11 electoral votes went for him. Even though, even though Trump got 49% of the popular vote, still all 11 electoral votes went to Biden. So on the night of the presidential election, you will see um, a ticker up on every news site. How many electoral votes does this person need to win the election? Oh, they got California. That means they got this many votes. They got 57 votes or electoral votes. Um, oh, they got Arizona. Now they have 11. Oh, they got North Dakota. Now they have three. You have to still win the big states, right? Yes, North Dakota, Alaska, Rhode Island are all overrepresented in the electoral vote because the five people in North Dakota, and I know there's more than five, but the five people in North Dakota, if you were going to take the sort of votes per capita, the three electoral votes that North Dakota has and divide it by their population, each individual person has sort of more sway in the electoral college than each individual person in California. And yet, without the electoral college, our presidential elections would be decided by 17 counties. Those counties would be primarily urban, primarily coastal, and everyone else can just kind of suck it up, right? Like, if you do not live in one of these counties, right, your votes won't really make a difference. Your values um, won't be represented because 
what would any savvy candidate do? Well, they would go to those 17 counties where they, uh, where the most people live and see, what do you want? All right. You live in a city. So you care about infrastructure roads. Um, you care about business. You care about, um, gosh, I don't know, city things right? The values of people living in cities are just going to be different than the values of people living on farms. What you're worried about, how you feed yourself, the schools, like just the things that occupy your life are just going to be different if you are working in a skyscraper every day than if you're working on a farm every day. So if the way to win the presidential election is to win these 17 counties, the president. Uh, presidential candidates then just have to go and be like, what do you 17 counties want? Okay. I'm just going to give that to you. And there's no reason why they go to Iowa. There's no reason why they go to North Dakota or New Hampshire. There's no reason why they care about people who don't live in these big cities, right? Cause their votes don't matter to win. Now states create their own rules when it comes to the electoral college right? They do not have to have a winner take all policy. You could have a policy where, um, the elector, um, elector, um, is based off the different congressional districts and the way that they go is based off the congressional districts. So if let's say, um, the people in district one voted for Trump, but the people in district two voted for Biden, therefore, one elector for Trump, one elector for Biden. And then the state senators would just go with whatever the popular vote in the state was. You could do it proportionally, right? So that means if Arizona has 11 electoral votes and Biden gets 51% of the popular vote, well, then Biden would get six electors and Trump would get five. Um, the Electoral Count Act is currently in Congress. Um, which um, is going to clarify the vice president's role and um, some of the um, structures of the electoral um, college, meaning what it takes to challenge it. Primarily, this is a reaction to the um, January 6th attempted coup. Um, so like I said, the electoral college has gotten a lot of attention in recent years because we've had multiple incidents where the person who got the popular vote did not win the electoral college. All right, division of powers. Let's talk about the judicial branch, a branch of government, which has gotten a lot of attention recently. So section one talks about the federal court system. And what most people think of when they think of the federal courts, they think of the Supreme Court. There's not a lot of time spent on article three, honestly. It says Congress establishes federal courts, judges get paid. The Supreme Court was um, designated to first mediate disagreements between states. And the chief justice runs the impeachment trial in the Senate. It talks about what's necessary to be charged with treason. Um, you need at least two witnesses to be charged with treason, which is why Aaron Burr is going to get off. Judges are appointed for life in the Supreme Court. 
The power of the Supreme Court to decide if laws are constitutional is going to be established by our first Chief Justice, John Marshall. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Not today. All right. So our three branches of government are intended to act as a check on one another. So Congress makes the laws, but if, um, if the president doesn't like the law, he can veto it. If um, the Supreme Court thinks the law is inappropriate, they can make it declared unconstitutional. So in that way, both the president and the courts act as a check on Congress. All right, what about the president? Well, if the president has broken the law, Congress has the power to impeach him and remove him from office. And Congress, or Supreme Court has the power to declare presidential acts unconstitutional. They do it all the time. All right, what about the Supreme Court? Well, the president chooses the judges for all federal courts, right? Did they nominate judges? But Congress has the power to impeach judges. If they don't like a judge, if the judge has broken the law, they can impeach them and remove them from office. All right, so there's a great TED-Ed on how is power divided in the US government. I typically would have students um, look at the constitution, um, break it down. So I would have students outline the constitution as a group using bullet points. Um, you don't need to break it down the clauses, um, but then as an individual outline the bill of rights, basically put it in your own words. Um, a couple more things before we start talking about the bill of rights. First off, article five of the constitution, constitution looks at how to amend it. Amendments um, are ways we change the constitution. It can come from Congress with a two thirds vote in both houses or from two thirds of states at a constitutional convention. Then three fourths of state legislatures must ratify the amendment or three fourths of conventions called by the state. There's an interesting court case um, coming up looking at the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment. And it asks the question if states can remove their ratification. Um, the Equal Rights Amendment has been floating around for decades and decades. And it finally got the necessary um, state support for it to become part of the constitution. But there's questions about, about how much, has too much time passed and can states remove their ratification? Uh, the Supreme Court's gonna be dealing with that question. Okay. After students look at the Bill of Rights, I would want them to debate and ask yourself this. Of the entire Bill of Rights, which amendment is most important? Why? I'd want students to decide as a group which one they think is most important. I would want students to declare the Bill of Rights in the Declaration, right? This is a good lesson. Um, you can get the activity from the Constitution Center. And then I think a fun lesson for students is write your own Bill of Rights. What rights do students have, right? Uh, what rights need to be protected from school administration and the school board? What rights, um, what are the rights of students, basically?
do this as a group. It's a great way to apply what they've learned and they usually get pretty into it. Um, okay, I've talked about the articles a little bit. Um, article four says that states have to respect each other's rules. Um, states get to govern themselves. Um, there's a great TED ed on amending the constitution. There's in fact a movement advocating for making constitutional amendment process easier because it is so difficult. Um, article six says US will pay its debts. Um, states have to obey Congress. Um, to work in the federal government, you have to swear to, to uphold the constitution and there's no religious test, meaning that the federal government is not allowed to say um, you have to be this religion to work for the federal government. And Article 7 says you have to have nine states ratify it. So first we had Delaware, then Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Georgia, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Maryland, South Carolina, New Hampshire, Virginia, New York, North Carolina, and Rhode Island was the last one in 1790. All right, I know it's been a lot of me talking, but let's just quickly go through the amendments. The Bill of Rights is designed to protect citizens from the government. So that's important to understand because sometimes people are like, Twitter is censoring my free speech, blah, 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 blah. That's unconstitutional. Facebook is censoring my free speech. YouTube is censoring my free speech. Mm, yeah, they are. And they're allowed to do that. These are private institutions. Private companies can censor your free speech all they want if you work for them, if you are using their service, right? A um, religious publication can choose to not publish things by atheists. That's allowed. They're allowed to do that. An atheist pub, um, publication is allowed to not publish things by Christians or Muslims or Buddhists. Private institutions are allowed to decide what their own rules are to a certain extent. The Bill of Rights is designed to protect citizens from government overreach. Private institutions have a lot of leeway. And just because these rights are listed in the constitution, it doesn't mean you don't have other rights as well. So the first one, amendment one, um, you have the freedom, the first amendment, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, of assembly and petition. Meaning that you are free to criticize the government all you want. You have freedom to practice your religion. The, we have freedom of the press, which means newspapers can and news anchors can criticize the government. You have freedom to gather and complain about the government and gather and um, come up with a constitutional amendment. And you have freedom to ask the government to change. Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, the right to keep weapons. This, um, there was a concern um, about the government attacking, right? Think about um, what the colonists had dealt with with the British, 
right? Soldiers quartered in their homes, um, a military um, shutting down harbors. They wanted to preserve weapons and the right to fight against an oppressive government, right? It's not just a right to have a gun, of course. <laughs> Every American citizen at this time probably had a gun. They had to hunt. They had to um, protect themselves against bears still, right? I'm not so worried about being attacked by bears, but um, if you talk to people who live in rural communities, yeah, they have guns and it's primarily for practical purposes. Third Amendment, one that gets zero attention nowadays, <laughs> protection from quartering of soldiers. Again, you see how this is a document of its time. Fourth Amendment, freedom from unreasonable search and seizure. Fifth Amendment, the rights of a person accused of a crime, right? You have a right to know what the crime is. Sixth Amendment, you have a right to a jury trial. Seventh Amendment, another right to a jury trial if you have a civil or criminal case. Eighth Amendment, protection from unfair fines and unreasonable punishment. Ninth Amendment, the rights of the people, basically saying there are other rights that aren't listed here. Tenth Amendment, the powers of the states and the people, right? Um, basically that um, there are specific powers kept by the states, kept by the people from the federal government. All right. So again, there's a great video from Ted Ed, why wasn't the Bill of Rights originally included in the US Constitution? Um, remember, this was the compromise James Madison promised the anti-federalists. And over time, these Bill of Rights have become vitally important. Um, they have been incorporated against the states. There have been Supreme Court cases which detail um, what they mean, what's included, what's not. Um, and there are still questions about what this means today. How does this apply into, how does the First Amendment apply to social media and the internet, for example? What does the Second Amendment mean in um, the context of um, semi-automatic weapons or ghost guns that you can print on a 3D printer? What would you add to the Bill of Rights? Are there any rights that you think are missing? Let me know in the comments. All right, other amendments. We're gonna go through these super fast. All right, 11th Amendment limits the number of cases you can bring against states. 12th Amendment looks at the election of the president and the vice president. 13th Amendment doesn't outlaw slavery completely, but out, or yes, 13th Amendment outlaws slavery. Big deal. It's a really big one to know. 14th Amendment talks about the rights of citizens. Again, one of the most important ones to know. If Amendments you need to know, Bill of Rights, 13th Amendment, 14th Amendment. 15th Amendment's up there too. It looks at your voting rights. 16th Amendment is income tax. 17th Amendment, election, direct election of senators. 18th Amendment, Prohibition, 19th Amendment, Women's Suffrage, 20th Amendment, Terms of Office, aka no more FDR serving four terms. 21st Amendment, sorry, 
terms of office. Um, oh yeah, it talks about lame duck presidents. Um, it moves um, inauguration day. 21st amendment, no more prohibition. 22nd amendment, president is limited to two terms. That's the FDR one. 23rd amendments, what do we do about presidential elections in DC? 24th amendment, no more poll tax. 25th amendment, vice president. 26th amendment, 18 year olds can vote. 27th amendment limits on salary changes. So there's a great um, image and website called periodicpresidents.com, which has this periodic table of the amendments. It's really helpful. Okay, so that was brief. That was possibly a little bit confusing. The constitution is such an important document that I fear that it's difficult to understand just hearing it. I encourage you to look at the document, break it down, outline it, make sure you understand it, dig into it. Because understanding the constitution is imperative to being a good citizen, to understanding how our system works and how it can be changed. So I would like you to explain the continuities and changes in the structure and functions of the government with the ratification of the constitution. If you found this helpful, please leave a rating and review. Thank you for listening. Have a great day.